Chapter Three of the Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter Three, The Gilded Age. The American democracy follows its ascending march, uniform, majestic as the laws of being, sure of itself as the decrees of eternity. George Bancroft you conceive this valiant spirit the golden thread in his hands feeling his way with firmer grasp with surer step through the dim labyrinth of that pioneer world he will not always be a pilot he is an artist born some day he is going to be a writer and what a magnificent nursery for his talent he has found at last in that brief sharp schooling he said once i got personally and familiarly acquainted with all the different types of human nature that are to be found in fiction biography or history when i find a well-drawn character in fiction or biography i generally take a warm personal interest in him for the reason that I have known him before, met him on the river. Yes, it ought to serve him well, that experience. It ought to equip him for a supreme interpretation of American life. It ought to serve him as the streets of London served Dickens, as the prison life of Siberia served Dostoevsky, as the Civil War hospitals served Whitman. But will it? only if the artist in him can overcome the pioneer. Those great writers use their experience simply as grist for the mill of a profound personal vision. Rising above it themselves, they imposed upon it the mold of their own individuality. Can Mark Twain keep the golden thread in his hands long enough? As a pilot he is not merely storing his mind with knowledge of men and their ways, he is forming indispensable habits of mind, self-confidence, self-respect, judgment, workmanlike behavior. He is redeeming his moral freedom. But has he quite found himself? Has his nature had time to crystallize? No, and the time is up. Circumstance steps in and cuts the golden thread, and all is lost. The Civil War, with its blockade of the Mississippi, put an end forever to the glories of the old river traffic. That unique career, the pilot's career, which had afforded Mark Twain the rudiments of a creative education, came to an abrupt end. Nothing could be more startling, more significant, than the change instantly registered by this fact in Mark Twain's life. What happened to him? He has told us in The Story of a Campaign That Failed that exceedingly dubious episode of his three weeks' career as a soldier in the Confederate Army. Mark Twain was undoubtedly right in feeling that he had no cause for shame in having so ignominiously taken up arms and a military title, only to desert on the pretext of a swollen ankle. The whole story simply reflects the confusion and misunderstanding with which, especially in the border states, the Civil War began. What it does reveal, however, is a singular childishness, a sort of infantility, in fact, that is very hard to reconcile with the character of any man of twenty-six, and especially one who, a few weeks before, had been a river sovereign, the master of a great steamboat, a worshipper of energy and purpose, in short, the Mark Twain we have just seen. They met that amateur battalion in a secret place on the outskirts of hannibal and there says mr paine they planned how they would sell their lives on the field of glory just as tom sawyer's band might have done if it had thought about playing war instead of indian and pirate and bandit with fierce raids on peach orchards and melon patches mark twain's brief career as a soldier exhibited as we see just the characteristics of a throwback, a reversion to a previous infantile frame of mind. Was the apparent control which he had established over his life merely illusory then? No, 
It was real enough, as long as it was fortified by the necessary conditions. Had those conditions continued a little longer, one feels certain, that self-control would have become organic, and Mark Twain would never have had to deny free will, would never in later years have been led to assert so passionately that man is a mere chameleon. But the habit of moral independence, of self-determination, was so new to this man who had passed his whole adolescence in his mother's leading strings, the old, dependent, chaotic, haphazard pioneer instinct of his childhood so deeply seated, that the moment these fortifying conditions were removed, he slipped back into the boy he had been before. He had lost his one opportunity, the one guideway that Western life could afford the artist in him. For four years his life had been motivated by the ideal of craftsmanship. Nothing stood between him now and a world given over to exploitation. A boy just out of school. It was in this frame of mind, committing himself gaily to chance, that he went west with his brother Orion to the Nevada gold fields. One recalls the tense, passionate young figure of the pilot-house exhorting his brother to take up a line of action, and follow it out, in spite of the very devil. Jotting in his notebook eager and confident reflections on the duty of taking hold of life with a purpose. In these words, from Roughing It, he pictures the change in his mood. Nothing helps scenery like ham and eggs ham and eggs, and after these a pipe, an old, rank, delicious pipe, ham and eggs, and scenery, a downgrade, a flying coach, a fragrant pipe, and a contented heart. These make happiness. It is what all the ages have struggled for. A downgrade going west. He is on the loose, you see. That will, that purpose, have become a bore even to think about. And who could wish him less human? Only one who knows the fearful retribution his own soul is going to exact of him. He is innocently, frankly, yielding himself to life, unaware in his joyous sense of freedom that he is no longer really free that he is bound once more by all the compulsions of his childhood. But now, in order to understand what happened to Mark Twain, we shall have to break the thread of his personal history. The influence is about the human being, he wrote years later. Create his preferences, his aversions, his politics, his tastes, his morals, his religion. He creates none of these things for himself. That, as we shall see, was Mark Twain's deduction from his own life. Consequently, we must glance now at the epoch and the society to which, at this critical moment of his career, he was so gaily, so trustfully committing himself. What was that epoch? It was the round half-century that began in the midst of the Civil War, reached its apogee in the seventies and eighties, and its climacteric in the nineties of the last century, with the beginning of the so-called progressive movement, and came to an indeterminate conclusion, by the kindness of heaven, shortly before the War of 1914. It was the epoch of industrial pioneering, the Gilded Age, as Mark Twain called it in the title of his only novel, the age when presidents were businessmen, and generals were businessmen, and preachers were businessmen, when the whole psychic energy of the American people was absorbed in the exploitation and the organization of the material resources of the continent, and business enterprise was virtually the only recognized sphere of action. One recalls the career of Charles Francis Adams, a man of powerful individual character. He was certainly intended by nature to carry on the traditions of disinterested public effort he had inherited from three generations of ancestors. Casting about for a career immediately after the Civil War, however, 
he was able to find in business alone as he has told us in his autobiography the proper scope for his energies surveying the whole field he says instinctively recognizing my unfitness for the law i fixed on the railroad system as the most developing force and largest field of the day and determined to attach myself to it and how fully by the end of his life he had come to accept the values of his epoch in spite of that tell-tale otherwise-mindedness of his we can see from these candid words as to politics it is a game art science literature we know how fashions change what i now find i would really have liked is something quite different i would like to have accumulated and ample and frequent opportunity for so doing was offered me one of those vast fortunes of the present day rising up into the tens and scores of millions what is vulgarly known as money to burn i would like to be the nineteenth-century john harvard the john harvard of the money-bags if you will i would rather be that than be historian or general or president less than ever then after the civil war can america be said to have offered a career open to all talents it offered only one career that of sharing in the material development of the continent into this one channel passed all the religious fervor of the race i have spoken of mark twain's novel it is not a good novel it is artistically almost an unqualified failure and yet as inferior works often do it conveys the spirit of its time it tells that is to say a story which in default of any other and better might well be called the odyssey of modern america philip sterling the hero is in love with ruth bolton the daughter of a rich quaker and his ambition is to make money so that he may marry her and establish a home philip goes west in search of a coal mine he is baffled in his quest again and again he still had faith that there was coal in that mountain he had made a picture of himself living there a hermit in a shanty by the tunnel perhaps some day he felt it must be so some day he would strike coal but what if he did would he be alive to care for it then no a man wants riches in his youth when the world is fresh to him philip had to look about him he was like adam the world was all before him where to choose routed by the stubborn mountain he persists in his dream again he goes back to it and toils on three or four times in as many weeks he said to himself am i a visionary i must be a visionary his workers desert him after that philip fought his battle alone once more he begins to have doubts i am conquered i have got to give it up but i am not conquered i will go and work for money and come back and have another fight with fate ah me it may be years it may be years and then at last when the hour is blackest he strikes the coal a mountain full of it philip in luck we are told had become suddenly a person of consideration whose speech was freighted with meaning whose looks were all significant the words of a proprietor of a rich coal mine have a golden sound and his common sayings are repeated as if they were solid wisdom triumphant philip goes back to ruth and they are married and the gilded age is justified in its children 
am i wrong in suggesting that this is the true folk odyssey of our civilization it is the pattern one might almost say of all the stories of modern america and what distinguishes it from other national epopees is the fact that all its idealism runs into the channel of money-making mr lowes dickinson once commented on the truly religious character of american business the gilded age enables us to verify that observation at the source for all the phenomena of religion figure in philip's search for the coal-mine he lives in the faith of discovering it he sees himself as another adam as a hermit consecrated to that cause he thinks of money as the treasure you long for in your youth when the world is fresh to you he invokes providence to help him to find it he speaks of himself in his ardent longing for it as a visionary he speaks of fighting his battle alone of another fight with fate this is not mere zeal one observes not the mere zeal of the mere votary it is quite specifically the religious zeal of the religious votary and as philip sterling is to himself in the process so he is to others in the event the words of a proprietor of a rich coal mine have a golden sound and his common sayings are repeated as if they were solid wisdom the hero in other words has become the prophet we can see now that during the gilded age at least wealth meant to americans something else than mere material possession and the pursuit of it nothing less than a sacred duty one might note in corroboration of this an interesting passage from william roscoe thayer's life and letters of john hay that you have property is proof of industry and foresight on your part or your father's that you have nothing is a judgment on your laziness and vices or on your improvidence the world is a moral world which it would not be if virtue and vice received the same rewards this summary though confessedly crude may help if it be not pushed too close to define john hay's position the property you own be it a tiny cottage or a palace means so much more than the tangible object with it are bound up whatever in historic times has stood for civilization so an attack on property becomes an attack on civilization here surely we have one of those supremely characteristic utterances that convey the note of whole societies that industry and foresight are the cardinal virtues that virtue and vice are to be distinguished not by any intrinsic spiritual standard but by their comparative results in material wealth that the institution of private property is bound up with whatever in historic times has stood for civilization barring of course the teachings of jesus and buddha and francis of assisi and most of the art thought and literature of the world is a doctrine that can hardly seem other than eccentric to anyone with a sense of the history of the human spirit yet it was the social creed of john hay and john hay was not even a business man he was a poet and a man of letters when tolstoy said that property is not a law of nature the will of god or a historical necessity but rather a superstition he was expressing in a somewhat extreme form the general view of thinkers and poets and even of economists during these latter years a view the imaginative mind can hardly do other than hold it is very significant therefore to find american men of letters opposing by this insistence upon the supremacy of material values what must have been their own normal personal instinct as well as the whole tendency of modern liberal culture for john hay was far from unique even walt whitman said democracy looks with suspicious ill-satisfied eye upon the very poor and on those out of business 
she asks for men and women with occupations well-off owners of houses and acres and with cash in the bank industry and foresight devoted to the pursuit of wealth here one has at once the end and the means of the simple universal morality of the gilded age and he alone was justified to him alone everything was forgiven who succeeded the following dialogue wrote pickens in his american notes i have held a hundred times is it not a very disgraceful circumstance that such a man as so-and-so should be acquiring a large property by the most infamous and odious means and notwithstanding all the crimes of which he has been guilty should be tolerated and abetted by your citizens he is a public nuisance is he not yes sir a convicted liar yes sir he has been kicked and cuffed and caned yes sir and he is utterly dishonorable debased and profligate yes sir in the name of wonder then what is his merit well sir he is a smart man smartness was indeed for the gilded age the divine principle that moved the sun and the other stars we cannot understand this mood this creed this morality unless we realize that the businessmen of the generation after the civil war were essentially still pioneers and that all their habits of thought were the fruits of the exigencies of pioneering the whole country was in fact engaged in a vast crusade that required an absolute homogeneity of feeling almost every american family had some sort of stake in the west and acquiesced naturally therefore in that worship of success that instinctive belief that there was something sacred in the pursuit of wealth without which the pioneers themselves could hardly have survived without the chance of an indeterminate financial reward they would never have left their homes in the east or in europe without it they could never under the immensely difficult conditions they encountered have transformed as they so often did the spirit of adventure into the spirit of perseverance what kept them up if it was not the hope hardly of a competence but of great wealth faith in the possibility of a lucky strike the fact that immeasurable riches lay before some of them at least that the mountains were full of gold and the lands of oil that great cities were certainly destined to rise up some day in this wilderness that these fertile territories these great rivers these rich forests lay there brimming over with fortune for a race to come that vision was ever in their minds and since through private enterprise alone could that consummation ever come for the group spirit of the colonist had not been bred in the american nature private enterprise became for the pioneer a sort of obligation to the society of the future some instinct told him to the steady welfare of his self-respect that in serving himself well he was also serving america to the pioneer in short private and public interests were identical and the worship of success was actually a social cult it was a crusade i say and it required an absolute homogeneity of feeling we were a simple homogeneous folk before the civil war and the practical effect of pioneering and the business regime was to keep us so to prevent any of that differentiation that evolution of the homogeneous into the heterogeneous which since herbert spencer stated it has been generally conceived as the note of true human progress the effect of business upon the individual has never been better described than in these words of charles francis adams i have known and known tolerably well a good many successful men big financially men famous during the last half century and a less interesting crowd i do not care to encounter not one that i have ever known would i care to meet again either in this world 
or the next, nor is one of them associated in my mind with the idea of humor, thought, or refinement, a set of mere money-getters and traders. They were essentially unattractive and uninteresting. Why this is so, Mr. Herbert Crowley has explained in The Promise of American Life, a man's individuality is as much compromised by success under the conditions imposed by such a system as it is by failure. His actual occupation may tend to make his individuality real and fruitful, but the quality of the work is determined by a merely acquisitive motive, and the man himself thereby usually debarred from obtaining any edifying personal independence or any peculiar personal distinction. Different as American businessmen are, one from another, in temperament, circumstances, and habits, they have a way of becoming fundamentally very much alike. Their individualities are forced into a common mold, because the ultimate measure of the value of their work is the same, and is nothing but its results in cash." such is the result of the business process and the success of the process required during the epoch of industrial pioneering a virtually automatic sacrifice of almost everything that makes individuality significant you no longer count is the motto a french novelist has drawn from the european war he means that in order to attain the collective goal the individual must necessarily submerge himself in the collective mind, that the mental uniform is no less indispensable than the physical. It was so in America, in the Gilded Age. The mere assertion of individuality was a menace to the integrity of what is called the herd. How much more so that extreme form of individuality, the creative spirit, whose whole tendency is skeptical, critical realistic, disruptive. It is no wonder, consequently, as Mr. Crowley says, that the pioneer democracy viewed with distrust and aversion the man with a special vocation and high standards of achievement. In fact, one was required not merely to forego one's individual tastes and beliefs and ideas, but positively to cry up the beliefs and tastes of the herd, for it was not enough for the pioneers to suppress those influences that were hostile to their immediate efficiency, they were obliged also to romanticize their situation. Solitary as they were, or at best, united in feeble groups against overwhelming odds, how could they have carried out their task if they had not been blinded to the difficulties, the hideousness of it, the myth of manifest destiny, the American myth, as one might call it, what was it but an immense rose-colored veil the pioneers threw over the continent in order that it might be developed? Never were there such illusionists. They were like men in a chloroform dream, and it was happily so, for that chloroform was indeed an anesthetic. Without the feeling that they were the children of destiny, without the social dream that some vast boon to humanity hung upon their enterprise, without the personal dream of immeasurable success for themselves, who would ever have endured such voluntary hardships? One recalls poor John Clemens, Mark Twain's father, absorbed in a perpetual motion machine that was to save mankind, no doubt, and bring its inventor millions. One recalls that vision of the Tennessee land that buoyed up the spirit of Squire Hawkins, even while it brought him wretchedness and death. As for Colonel Sellers, who was so intoxicated with dreams of fortune that he had lost all sense of the distinction between reality and illusion, he is indeed the archetypical American of the pioneering epoch. One remembers him in his miserable shanty in the Tennessee wilds. His wife warned the bone, his children half-naked and half-starved, the carpetless floor, the pictureless walls, the crazy clock, the battered stove. To Colonel Sellers, that establishment is a feudal castle. His wife is a chatelaine, his children the baron's cubs, 
and when he lights the candle and places it behind the isinglass of the broken stove, is it not to him, indeed and in truth, the hospitable blaze upon the hearth of the great hall? To such a degree has the promoter's instinct, the wish of the advertiser, taken possession of his brain, that he already sees in the barren stretch of land about him the city which is destined some day to rise up there. The vision of the material opportunities among which he lives has supplanted his reason and his five senses, and obliterated in his eyes the whole aspect of reality. The pioneers, in fact, had not only to submit to these illusions, but to propagate them. A story Mark Twain used to tell, the story of Jim Gillis and the California Plums, is emblematic of this. Jim Gillis, the original of the Bret Hart's truthful James, was a miner to whose solitary cabin in the Tuolumne Hills Mark Twain and his friends used to resort. One day an old squaw came along selling some green plums. One of the men carelessly remarked that while these plums, California plums, might be all right, he had never heard of anyone eating them. There was no escape after that, says Mr. Paine. Jim had to buy some of those plums, whose acid was of the hair-lifting aquafortis variety, and all the rest of the day he stewed them, adding sugar, trying to make them palatable, tasting them now and then, boasting, meanwhile, of their nectar-like deliciousness. He gave the others a taste by and by, a withering, corroding sup, and they derided him and rode him down. But Jim never weakened. He ate that fearful brew, and though for days his mouth was like fire, he still referred to the luscious, health-giving joys of the California plums. How much of the romanticism of the pioneers there is in that story! It was the same over-determination that led them to call their settlements by such names as Eden, like that wretched swamp hamlet in Martin Guzzlewit that made them inveigle prospectors and settlers with utterly mendacious pictures of their future, that made it obligatory upon everyone to boost, not knock, a slogan still of absolute authority in certain parts of the West. Behind this tendency the nation was united as a solid block. It would not tolerate anything that attacked the ideal of success, that made the country seem unattractive or the future uncertain. Every sort of criticism, in fact, was regarded as lays majesty to the folk spirit of America, and no traveler from abroad, however fair-minded, could tell the truth about us without jeopardizing his life, liberty, and reputation. Who does not remember the story of Dickens' connection with America, the still more notable story of the good Captain Basil Hall, who, simply because he mentioned in print some of the less attractive traits of pioneer life, was publicly accused of being an agent of the British government on a special mission to blacken and defame this country. Merely to describe facts as they were was regarded as a sort of treachery among a people who, having next to no intellectual interest in the truth, had, on the other hand, a strong emotional interest in the perversion of it. An American who went abroad and stayed, without an official excuse, more than a reasonable time, was regarded as a turncoat and a deserter. If he remained at home, he was obliged to accept the uniform on pain of being called a crank and of actually, by the psychological law that operates in these cases, becoming one. There is no type in our social history more significant than that ubiquitous figure the village atheist. One recalls Judge Driscoll in Puddenhead Wilson, the president of the Free Thinkers Society of which Puddenhead was the only other member. Judge Driscoll, says Mark Twain, could be a free thinker and still hold his place in society because he was the person of most consequence in the community, and therefore could venture to go his own way and follow out his own notions. No respect for independence and individuality, in short, entitled a man to regulate his own views on life. Quite on the contrary, 
that was the privilege solely of those who having proved themselves superlatively smart were able to take it as it were by force if you could out-pioneer the pioneers you could wrest the possession of your own mind by that time in any case it was usually so soured and warped and embittered as to have become safely impotent as we can see now a vast unconscious conspiracy actuated all america against the creative spirit in an age when every sensitive mind in england was in full revolt against the blind mechanical devastating forces of a progress that promised nothing but the ultimate collapse of civilization when all europe was alive with prophets aristocratic prophets proletarian prophets religious and philosophical and humanitarian and economic and artistic prophets crying out in the name of the human spirit against the obscene advance of capitalistic industrialism in an age glorified by nothing but the beautiful anger of the tolstoys and the marxes the nietzsches and the renans the ruskins and the morrises in that age america innocent ignorant profoundly untroubled slept the righteous sleep of its own manifest and peculiar destiny we were in fact in our provincial isolation in just the state of the scandinavian countries during the european wars of eighteen sixty six to eighteen seventy as george branders describes it in his autobiography while the intellectual life languished as a plant droops in a close confined place the people were self-satisfied they rested on their laurels and fell into a doze and while they dozed they had dreams the cultivated and especially the half-cultivated public in denmark and norway dreamed that they were the salt of europe they dreamed that by their idealism they would regenerate the foreign nations they dreamed that they were the free mighty north which would lead the cause of the peoples to victory and they woke up unfree impotent ignorant yes even new england the old home of so many brave and virile causes even new england which had cared so much for the freedom of the individual had ceased to afford any stimulus or any asylum for the human spirit new england had been literally emasculated by the civil war or rather by the exodus of young men westward which was more or less synchronous with the war the continent had been opened up the rural population of the east had been uprooted had been set in motion had formed habits of wandering the war like a fever had as it were stimulated the circulation of the race and we might say that by a natural attraction the blood of the head which new england had been had flowed into those remote members the western territories in roughing it mark twain has pictured the population of the gold fields it was a driving vigorous restless population in those days he says it was an assemblage of two hundred thousand young men not simpering dainty kid-glove weaklings but stalwart muscular dauntless young braves brimful of push and energy and royally endowed with every attribute that goes to make up a peerless and magnificent manhood the very pick and choice of the world's glorious ones no women no children no gray and stooping veterans none but erect bright-eyed quick-moving strong-handed young giants it was a splendid population for all the slow sleepy sluggish-brained sloths stayed at home you never find that sort of people among pioneers those gold fields of the west one might almost imagine that nature itself was awake and conscious and not only awake but shrewd and calculating to have placed such a magnet there at the farthest edge of the continent in order to captivate the highest imaginations in order to draw swiftly fatefully 
over that vast forbidding intervening space a population hardy enough inventive enough poetic enough if not to conquer and subdue at least to cover it and stake the claims of the future but what was the result one is often told by new englanders who were children in the years just after the war how the young men left the towns and villages never to return and has not a whole school of story-writers and more recently of poets familiarized us with the life of this new england countryside during the generation that followed those villages full of old maids and a few tattered remnants of the male sex the less vigorous the less intelligent a population only half sane owing to solitude and the decay of social interests what a civilization they picture those novels and those poems a civilization riddled with neurasthenia madness and mental death christian science was as characteristic an outgrowth of this generation as abolition and perfectionism philosophy and poetry all those manifestations of a surplus of psychic energy had been of the generation before new england in short and with new england the whole spiritual life of the nation had passed into the condition of a neurotic anemia in which it has remained so largely to this day this explains the notorious petrifaction of boston that petrifaction of its higher levels which was illustrated in so tragic-comic a way by the unhappy episode of mark twain's wittier birthday speech it was not the fault of those gently charming men emerson and longfellow and dr holmes that he was made to feel in his own phrase like a barkeeper in heaven they had no wish to be or to appear like graven idols it was the subsistence of the flood of life beneath them that had left them high and dry as the ark on ararat they continued survivals as they were of a happier age when a whole outlying population had in a measure shared their creative impulses to nod and smile to think and dream just as if nothing had happened they were not offended by mark twain's unlucky wit boston was offended boston which no longer open to the winds of impulse and desire cherished these men as the symbols of an extinct cause that had grown all the more sacrosanct in their eyes the less they participated in it for the real forces of boston society had gone the way of all flesh the brahmins and the sons of the brahmins had not followed bodily in the path of the pioneers but they had followed them discreetly in spirit they saved their faces by remaining like charles francis adams otherwise minded but they bought up land in kansas city just the same in a word the last stronghold of the stiff-necked and free-minded masculine individualism of the american past had capitulated to the golden eagle literature culture the conservation of the ideal had passed into the hands of women ah it was not women only not the sort of women who had so often tended the bright light of literature in france it was the sad ubiquitous spinster left behind with her own desiccated soul by the stampede of the young men westward new england had retained its cultural hegemony by default and the new england spinster with her restricted experience her complicated repressions and all her glacial taboos of good form had become the pacemaker in the arts one cannot but see in mr howells the predestined figurehead of this new regime it was the sign of the decay of artistic vitality in new england that the old literary brahmins were obliged to summon a westerner to carry on their apostolic succession but for mr howells the first alien editor of the atlantic monthly was consecrated to the high priesthood by an all but literal laying on of hands and certainly mr howells already intimidated by the prestige of boston was a singularly appropriate heir he has told us in his autobiography how having as a young reporter in ohio stumbled upon a particularly sordid tragedy he resolved ever after to avert his eyes from the darker side of life 
an incident that throws rather a glaring light upon what later became his prime dogma that the more smiling aspects of life are the more american the dogma as we see was merely a rationalization of his own unconscious desire neither to see in america nor to say about america anything that americans in general did not wish to have seen or said his confessed aim was to reveal the charm of the commonplace an essentially passive and feminine conception of his art and while his superficial realism gave him the sanction of modernity it dispensed him at the same time from any of those drastic imaginative reconstructions of life and society that are of the essence of all masculine fiction in short he had attained a thoroughly denatured point of view and one nicely adapted to an age that would not tolerate any assault upon the established fact meanwhile the eminence of his position and his truly beautiful and distinguished talent made him what mark twain called the critical court of last resort in this country from whose decision there is no appeal the spokesman the mild and submissive dictator of an age in which women wrote half the books and formed the greater part of the reading public he diffused far and wide the notion of the artist's role through which he had found his own salvation a notion that is to say which accepted implicitly the religious moral and social taboos of the time i have said that during this epoch a vast unconscious conspiracy actuated all america against the creative life for is it not plain now that the cultural domination of this emasculated new england simply played into the hands of the business regime the taboos of the one supported in effect the taboos of the other the public opinion of both sexes and of all classes east and west alike formed a closed ring as it were against any manifestation of the vital restless critical disruptive spirit of artistic individuality it was this and not the fact or the illusion that america was a young country that impelled henry james and whistler and virtually every other american who possessed a vital sense of the artistic vocation to seek what necessarily became an exotic development in europe it was this that drove walt whitman into his lair at camden where he lived at bay during the rest of his life carrying on a perpetual guerrilla warfare against the whole literary confraternity of the age it was this we may assume that led john hay to publish the breadwinners anonymously and henry adams his novel democracy with the corruption the vulgarity the vapidity of american life these men were completely disillusioned but motives of self-preservation motives that would certainly not have operated in men of a corresponding type before the civil war restrained them from impairing by strong assertions of individual judgment the consistency of feeling upon which the pioneers rightly placed such a high value the tradition of literary independence had never been strong in america that the artist and the thinker are types whose integrity is vital to society and who are under a categorical imperative to pursue their vocation frankly and disinterestedly was an idea that had entered scarcely a dozen american minds our authors generally had accepted the complacent dictum of william cullen bryant that literature is a good staff but a bad crutch not a vocation in short but an avocation a few desperate minds justified themselves by representing the artist as a sort of glorified methodist minister and reacted so far from the prevailing materialism as to say that art was under a divine sanction we can see from the letters of george innes and sidney lanier how these poor men these admirable and sincere men allowed themselves to be devoured by theory in general however the new dispensation bred a race of writers who accommodated themselves instinctively to the exigencies of an age that required a rigid conformity in spirit while maintaining as a sop to cerberus a highly artistic tradition in form 
thus save for the voice of the machine the whole nation was quiescent no specter intruded upon the jolly family party of prosperous america there was no one to gainsay its blind and innocent longing for success for prestige for power mr meredith nicholson lately wrote a glowing eulogy on the idyllic life of the valley of democracy it is in keeping with the cheery contentment of the west he said that it believes that it has at home or can summon to its r f d box everything essential to human happiness why he added the west even has poets admirable poets representative poets and among these poets he mentioned the author of the spoon river anthology there we have a belated but none the less perfect illustration of the romantic dualism of the gilded age for in the very fact of becoming a cultural possession of the middle west the spoon river anthology completely upsets mr nicholson's glowing picture of its life mr nicholson does not see this to him as to mr howells the more smiling aspects of life are the more american but that is because he too has averted his eyes from all the other aspects there i say in that false syllogism of mr nicholson's we have a perfect illustration of the romantic dualism of the gilded age and of the part literature was obliged to play in it essentially america was not happy it was a dark jumble of decayed faiths of unconfessed class distinctions of repressed desires of inarticulate misery read the story of a country town and a son of the middle border and ethan Fromm. it was a nation like other nations and one that had no folk music no folk art no folk poetry or next to none to express it to console it but to have said so would have been to hurt business it was a horde life a herd life an epoch without sun or stars the twilight of a human spirit that had nothing upon which to feed but the living waters of camden and the dried manna of concord for the jolly family party was open to very few and those moreover who except for their intense family affections and a certain hectic joy of action that left them old and worn at fifty-five had foregone the best things life has to offer but was it not for the welfare of all that they so diligently promulgated the myth of america's manifest destiny perhaps perhaps since the prodigious task of pioneering had to be carried through perhaps also because after the disillusionments of the present epoch that myth will prove to have a certain beautiful residuum of truth end of chapter three the gilded age read by john greenman